0: This morning we are going to take a moment to consider the state of the church. As we know, as Americans, at least twice a year, our president stands before Congress and stands before the people of the nation and gives a brief speech concerning the state of the union of our nation. They often begin by stating that the union is strong. Allowing for the people of the United States to be assured that the unity of the states still exists. 20 years ago, after we finished our series called The Spirit of the Church, when we started the church, I gave an address called the State of the Church Address, where we took a look at the state of the church today in the United States of America. And as we look at this state of the church, I must begin by saying the state of the church in the United States of America is questionable. This morning I am going to be referring to a survey that was completed last month of this year by the American Cultural and Faith Institution that was one of the most detailed surveys ever conducted within the church here in America to discover and to determine how many of professed believers in Jesus Christ, Christians, born-again, evangelical, conservative, theologically-centered Christians, actually hold to, live according to, And live by a biblical world view. Meaning, how many of these professed Christians actually live out their Christian faith within their lives? How many of them view the world through the lens of scripture? To determine right and wrong, truth and error, etc.? How many are about the Father's business while they are here on this earth, understanding first and foremost that before being a citizen of the United States of America, we are a subject of the kingdom of God? And the result of this survey would have me question the state of the church in America. I believe Pastor Joe was correct when he said this morning that there is no perfect church. Any perfect church occupied or attended by one would then become imperfect. All of us are imperfect people. However, though, the state of the survey indicates to us, and we will see and show and demonstrate in just a moment, that there are many professing Christians today who are not living out their faith day by day. Begging the question, do they really believe that what they believe is really true? And that is what we are going to explore this morning. We are first going to begin by understanding what a world view is. Even though you may be unfamiliar with that term or believe that we are now going to get into some deep academic discussion, I will tell you that each and every one of you, regardless if you are aware of the fact or not, you carry a worldview within you. As a believer in Jesus Christ, we would hope that you have a biblical worldview where your worldview is shaped by God's Word. And you look at the world through the lens of the Scriptures. But everybody has a world view. If you're into computers, and you have a computer at home, you understand that there are two major components to that computer. One is the hardware, and one is the software. And for a computer to work properly both have to work together your body your physical body would be the same as the computer hardware the operating system of that uh, computer would be your worldview and as you know there is a great uh, distinction between which operating system you use Mac OS is much different than Linux. It's much different than Windows, etc. And depending upon your worldview, will dep- therefore create the manner in which you will conduct and live out your life. So, we are hoping that as a believer in Jesus Christ, as a Christian, you would hold to a biblical worldview. But let us substantiate for our sake of conversation this morning what a worldview is. And I like the work that Dan Story did. And he writes Everyone has a worldview, whether they realize it or not. What is a worldview? In the broadest sense, a worldview is the standard by which an individual consciously and unconsciously interprets all data so as to maintain a consistent and coherent understanding of the whole of reality. A worldview acts like a filter in that it screens and analyzes and categorizes all of the information so that we can make sense out of the world. It is the frame of reference from which we discern truth from falsehood make rational decisions, and formulate ethical and religious values. Worldviews are made up of certain presuppositions or assumptions that an individual believes to be true. Norman Geisler, one of my favorite scholars, put it this way, A worldview is like a set of colored glasses. If one looks at the same object through green-colored glasses, he will see it as green, while another looking at the same object through red glasses will see it as red. This is why people with different worldviews will often see the same facts in a very different way. A worldview. We all have one. The question is, what is yours? As a Christian, we want to advocate for a biblical worldview. And we will put forth even uh, more determinately that is it possible for one who follows Jesus Christ to have any other than a biblical worldview? Because it begs the question, which we will repeat often throughout the message this morning... Do I really believe that what I believe is true? You may say, what is a biblical worldview? Pastor Greg Laurie simply puts it as this. Having a biblical worldview means that we look at life through a scriptural lens, if you will. We view things from the point of reference of the Word of God. Another one writes, In the simplest terms, cultivating a biblical worldview means learning to think and act like Jesus. In February of 2017, the greatest survey on this subject was completed. It was an exhaustive, comprehensive survey that really revealed to us the lack and the disconnect of the number of professing Christians in America and those who truly carry a world view. The survey called the individuals who were consistent in what they believe and what they did, they called those individuals integrated disciples. And as this survey was conducted by the American Cultural and Faith Institution, the summary of data was so comprehensive that they turned to the George Barna group and asked George Barna to compilate all of the information, bring it together, and to sort through it to make sure that they were interpreting the results accurately. Two observations were made and revealed through that survey that we are going to be discussing and will be the main points of our discussion this morning. Again, it is an extremely exhaustive survey. But I think the two points that we will look at this morning truly point to the concern that we have. The first point was found in their conclusions that 3 out of 10 adults, 30%, out of those who were surveyed can be considered to be born-again Christians based on their decision to confess their sins and accept Jesus as their Savior. However, among that segment, now 3 out of 10, out of that segment of Americans less than one-third, 31%, emerged as being an integrated disciple. Meaning, they lived out their faith in their everyday Christian life. What does this mean? Three out of ten believe to be born again. One of those three are actually living out their faith for Jesus Christ. The second one, Stipulates, overall, one-third of adults, 32%, describe themselves as theologically conservative. Among that group, just 25% qualify as integrated disciples. So one out of three of those who consider themselves born again actually are found to be living out their faith for Jesus Christ. Out of those who feel and determine themselves to be theologically conservative based upon the survey itself, one out of four were actually living out their Christian faith. These statistics are alarming, to say the least. And it begs the question that we have been asked by Del Tackett of the Truth Project so many times over the last seven years. Do they really believe that what they believe is really true? Those two born-again Christians who are not living out their Christian faith, I ask them the question this morning, do you really believe that what you believe is really true? To those who find themselves in that camp of being theologically conservative, I ask them the question, Do they really believe that what they believe is really true? And the question then drives us to consider this reality. Can one believe something and not truly act in accordance with it? Can one truly be a Christian and not act upon their belief? Now just let that simmer for a moment. Because that's what the statistic is, that's what this survey is telling us. That there are those who believe that they can hold to an intellectual uh, understanding of Jesus Christ without acting upon that intellectual understanding and yet still feel secure that they are truly a Christian in Christ. Those who are theologically conservative would certainly consider them to be themselves to be a Christian saved destined for heaven after they die but can one truly be a Christian and not live out their Christian faith now please i am in no way espounding a works based salvation we are saved by faith and faith alone nothing else But has anyone ever asked you the question to qualify that faith? What type of faith, what type of belief must you hold to to actually be a saved Christian? That's a question that we don't want to dive into. Some may feel that that's intrusive, that we shouldn't even be asking that question. As long as someone says they believe something, that should be sufficient for us. But let me ask you a question. Just because someone believes something to be true doesn't mean that it's actually true, does it? And can I say that I really love a person and not challenge them knowing that they're holding on to something that may not save them in the end? Can I really say that I care about that person to not ask them that pointed in question? I'm not judging And I'm certainly not stating that I'm better than anyone else. I'm asking for a qualification. We act upon what we believe and truly believe all the time. Let me give you three very simple examples before we dive into the whole aspect of Christianity. We all believe that fire is hot, do we not? And that belief in fire being hot can either do one of two things. It can encourage us to do something or it can prohibit us from doing something. Correct? For example... It, it can encourage me to do something if I come out of the cold and I come into a home and I see a fireplace within that home and I am cold from being outside, I know that my belief in fire being hot is a reality and therefore I seek out the fireplace and I sit down right next to it. It's like that person when you're at Panera and you know that they're in line At the same time you are, they're checking out with their coffee and there's one chair next to the fireplace and you just hope that you get your coffee cup before they do because you're freezing. It's spring in Chicago, so it's 23, (laughs) you know, but that same fire, my belief in it, my understanding of it, my knowledge of it tells me that if I put my hand in it, I'm going to burn my hand. And therefore, I'm going to resist doing so. I'm not even going to touch the glass of the fireplace, knowing that it is hot and that it can hurt me. There, I truly believe that what I believe is true because I've acted upon it. I sought it out for warmth and I avoided it for harm. Let's talk about this. This little clear substance called water. My understanding and knowledge of water can cause me to do one of two things. It can cause me to uh, pursue it or to avoid it. When I am thirsty, putting this in my mouth is very satisfying. After being outside all day, look at the number of people just drinking their water right now. They're like, hmm, I'm thirsty now. <laughs> I put some of this in my mouth and it's refreshing. It uh, rejuvenates me, and it rehydrates me, makes me feel better. If I put too much of this in my mouth, it'll cause me to drown. Now, I personally never drown, but I will take by faith that if I go under the water for, very, for a very long period of time, I will not survive. I don't have to prove that to be true. I know that to be true. So my understanding, my faith, my belief in water has then guided me to do something or to prohibit something. 22 years ago, I married the love of my life. And I enjoy being married immensely. To remind myself of being married, I have this ring on my finger. However though, this my marriage can cause me to do things, and it can prohibit me from doing things, knowing that I am married and that I have made a commitment to my wife. I know that it is okay for her and I to have the marriage relationship that God has designed to have children and so forth. But I also know that if I were to look at another woman or entertain that thought, she would kill me. But more importantly, it's absolutely displeasing to God. And so the conscientious idea of me being married dictates what I do and what I do not do. I believe that I am married and therefore I act upon that belief because I believe that what I believe is really true. I am truly married. So the question then becomes, can I have a belief in Jesus Christ, consider myself a Christian, thinking that I am saved, and yet not have that belief somehow, some way change my life, my thinking, my decision making, my actions, etc.? That's the question we wrestle with this morning. And I don't even have to try to substantiate an answer for you because the Bible already has. And I would like you to turn in your Bibles, if you will, to James chapter 2. And I want you to read with me as we go through this passage together because this is the exact question that James is dealing with here in this particular portion of his letter. Now, what you may not know this morning is that James is one of the earliest New Testament books that we have. It was written shortly after the, the newly found church there in Acts chapter 2, which we just studied together for the last three months. As the church began to grow and to expand and to grow, James at this time is the half-brother of Jesus. Why do I say that? Because James' dad was Joseph. Jesus had a different dad, didn't he? God the Father. And James actually became a Christian after the resurrection of his brother Jesus. Now, there are so many things that I could comment upon that alone. Think about growing up with God, Why can't you be more like your older brother? He's God, man. I'll never get to that standard, you know. But James did not believe until Jesus ascended. And then James became the head of the church there in Jerusalem after the church began. And for a Jewish believer, this whole idea of faith alone was something that they were wrestling with. And as they began to wrestle with it, James says that this faith must be qualified. And this faith, true, genuine, saving faith, will be manifested and demonstrated through a person's life by their actions. Not that their actions save them. Because again, it is by faith and faith alone that we are saved. But James makes the argument that one who has true faith will be changed from the inside out. They will see needs around them and as they are compelled by the Lord through Scripture and by the Spirit, they will fulfill those needs that they see around them taking them back to the Old Testament and showing them and demonstrating for them that Abraham said he believed God, but it wasn't until he actually took his only son Isaac and to sacrifice him that that belief was truly substantiated. Meaning it was verified, it was authentic, it was real, it was genuine, etc. So let us begin. In verse 14 of James chapter 2, and he writes as such. This has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. I believe that James wrote this letter a little bit at a time. As different issues arose, he added another paragraph to the letter in which he was writing to the church. Until maybe he filled up both sides of the scroll or the parchment in which he had So he begins here and says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? He's saying, can that type of faith save him? So he's delineating that there's two different types of faith. There's a faith that demonstrates itself through the actions of one, and there's a faith that doesn't demonstrate itself through the actions of one. And he's saying the faith that doesn't demonstrate itself through the actions of one, can that faith, that type of faith, really save him? For example, verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body what good is that so also faith by itself if it does not have works is dead the one who sees his brother in need obviously lacking daily food has poor clothing the need is evident and you say to that person, go, be filled, be warm. How genuine are you actually being? By just simply telling the person, listen, you're poorly, you're poorly clothed. Go clothe yourself better. I, I know you're starving, but be, be filled and be satisfied. I can just see the person looking at him and say, what? I don't believe this person actually cares if this individual who is poorly clothed and poorly fed ever receives anything. Just by them acknowledging the need and not acting upon it in some way doesn't demonstrate anything. As as he says here in verse 17, so also faith by itself, if does not have works, is dead. But, now he anticipates a rebuttal question. Someone will say, well, you have faith, and I have works. And I will say, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. He's saying, I will establish my faith in Jesus Christ by the actions in which I perform. Not doing them in hopes of earning, obtaining, or maintaining salvation, but doing them because they are a new creation in Christ. Doing them because they are compelled by the love of Christ to do such things. James is saying, I will demonstrate my faith to you by what I do. But how will you demonstrate yours? By simply saying you believe? By simply acknowledging some intellectual facts about the character of God? How will you demonstrate that faith for me apart from some type of works? Verse 19. For example, you may say, he says, you believe that God is one. Well, you do well, he says, but understand that even the demons believe and they shudder at that fact. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? For example, he goes now back into the Old Testament. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Let me make clear what he's saying here. The faith that Abraham demonstrated and had in God was substantiated before he was asked by God to take Isaac, his son, and to sacrifice him. Abraham believed that God would provide a son for them in their old age, even though he and his wife were beyond the years of childbirth. He believed God that through this son all the nations of the world would be blessed. For through Isaac would come Jacob and all the way down to David and then all the way down to Jesus Christ Himself. And through Christ, all the nations being blessed. Abraham believed all of that. And trusted God for all of that. And then God did something unspeakable. He then asked Isaac, I'm sorry, Abraham, to take Isaac, the child in which all of this was going to come down through, and take him and sacrifice him onto God in an act of obedience. And Abraham obeys to the point where he brings his child to Mount Moriah, lays him on the altar raises the knife only to hear God stop him and say, I will provide myself a sacrifice. And that mountain, 2,000 years later, was going to be the same mountain upon which Christ was going to be crucified, demonstrating the salvation that God was going to provide through himself, through his son, Jesus Christ. But even though God asked Abraham to do so, Abraham knew some way, somehow, God was still going to fulfill all the promises that he had made so many years earlier to Abraham, regardless of the death of his son or not. And as a result, the faith that Abraham had was Shown and justified by what he did when he went to altar his, uh, offer his son on the altar. And in verse 22, you see that faith active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. So James is making the argument that anyone who has a faith that does not demonstrate it in itself in some kind of outward action is a faith that is incomplete, only a faith that leads to these works of obedience is truly complete. Verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, "Abraham believed, and God, I believe God, excuse me, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Notice Abraham simply believed and that was the means of the righteousness in which he obtained, imputed by God. And as a result, he was called a friend of God. And he concludes in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by her works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Another Old Testament example of a prostitute named Rahab that was there in Jericho uh, prior to the uh, city being destroyed and she was saved and um, because she hid the spies and she released the spies. For also the body, verse 26, notice this. For also the body apart from the Spirit, is dead. Also, faith, apart from works, is dead. James is saying, if you hold a belief that you are not acting upon, he is saying that that belief is something you truly do not believe to be true. If you believed it to be true, you would act upon it accordingly. That's what he is saying here. My concern is that there are a proficient number of those who believe they are born again Christians who have no desire to live out their faith as a believer in Jesus Christ, yet thinking that they have uh, the assurance of getting to heaven and so on and so forth after they die, when in actuality they have no interest in living for Christ now here on this earth, James would say that faith is dead. And there are those who may be theologically conservative, but it doesn't lead to life change. James would say that faith is dead. For example, if you will, turn with me to the Gospel of John just quickly, John chapter 20. And in verse 30 of John chapter 20, John gives us the reason in which he wrote this Gospel. Now, Jesus did, verse 30, many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe. The first word there, again, this is where it lost in translation. Remember, we've talked about that. Here we have an English word representing a Greek word. The English language is less robust and comprehensive as the Greek language is. This word believe here means accept. It's information that you receive and you accept it. Information you receive and accept it. I've written this book that you may read this information and believe. Read it and accept it. And then he goes on to say, what I want you to accept is the, the understanding that uh, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That He is exactly who He says He is. And then he goes on to say and adds a second phrase. And that by believing... You may have life in his name. Now, you think, same word, right? Same meaning. Er, You've lost. Start over. Don't pass go. Don't collect $200. This word believe means to abide in, to trust wholeheartedly, to continue within. It's completely different. He is saying, not only do I want you to come to the reality that Jesus Christ is exactly who he said he was, but then I wanted you to believe so it impacts your life and changes you forever. Because I don't know about you, but once you come to the reality that Jesus is God, and everything he said is true, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. That the Bible tells us that the only place that this Christ should hold within our lives is a place of preeminence, meaning above everything else. How can you truly believe that and not have your life change accordingly? How can you put Christ in that position of preeminence over everything and not have your life changed? You can't do it, right? Think with me. When you got married, how much did your life change due to that Truth reality. A lot, right? I was 26 when I got married. I lived at home with my parents up until that point to help them during a time of uh, difficulty when then my dad was going through some heart issues. And he asked me to stay there so I could help out. I was welcome, I'm grateful to do it. Love my dad. When I got married, one of the hardest things for me to get used to is that there was somebody lying in the bed next to me. I don't think I moved. For the first five years of our marriage, I just laid her. I was so afraid that in the middle of the night, because I was so used to having personal, private real estate, that somehow, some way, I was going to kill her. <laughs> you make changes, right? You make changes, and truly, the person who gave us the advice that the, hap- the, the method of happiness for a marriage is two bathrooms—amen and amen. When you had children, how much did your life change? Yeah, we've all been there, we know that. If you've been there, you know that. Your life changes, right? That truth reality has an impact upon your life. Now we're saying, we come to the idea that God is the person Christ and he is preeminent over all things. How can our lives not change in the reality of that? So how does this change happen? Turn with me to Romans chapter 12, if you will. Romans chapter 12. Romans, one of the obviously theologically rich books of the New Testament. At the end of it, Paul desired to explain the proper reaction to all that was being said. And as you go through Romans, you see justification in Christ, in Christ alone, You see the grace of God being demonstrated. So the question that Paul then wrestles with, how should we respond to such grace? Such unmerited favor before God. And this is how this happens. This is how this transformation takes place. This is how you go from a faith that is dead to a faith that is real. He says, I appeal to you, I beg you, I beseech you to therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, he's saying in the light of the mercies of God, the depth of the mercies of God, the depth of the grace of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices holy and acceptable to God. First response to the true acknowledgement of the grace and mercy of God found in Christ Jesus, and the first step in placing Him in that position of preeminence that will change your life, is to respond by laying yourself down before Him as a living sacrifice. Saying, Lord, not my will be done in my life, but Yours. First and foremost, hey, that's the relationship Christ wants. Demands. Uh, There's no other place that he can fit. You know. Let me me just dispel a couple misconceptions. Uh, Christ is not your cosmic butler that you call upon when you're in need of help, and and but then when you don't need him anymore, you just kind of put him back up on the shelf. Just kind of say, okay, thank you, Jesus. Next time I need you, I'll rub your belly and bring you back down again. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's called a king. He's called Lord. He's called God. And through His death, we have been able to enter into that relationship with the Father once again because He paid for us a payment that we could not pay in and of ourselves. He gave His sinless life for our corrupt, sinful life. So the, very, the only thing I can do in response to His grace and His mercy is to fall down before him and say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. But he goes on here to be holy and acceptable, meaning that you are conscious of the desire and the manner in which God wants you to present yourself. Look what he calls it, which is your spiritual worship. Hey, let me me tell you this. Worship in the Bible is so much more than just simply coming and singing songs before God. The first time worship was ever used in the Bible was used by Abraham, as we discussed, before he went and took Isaac up to the mountain, Moriah, to sacrifice him. He said to his fellow um, servants, now wait for us here for the boy and I shall return for we go up to worship the Lord. First time worship is used there. It means laying ourselves down. That's what worship means. It's saying, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And then he says here in verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. There are two forces in play. The word conform there can be molded. The word transform there could be metamorphosis. The world is trying to conform you into the image that it desires you to bear. Why? Because we are designed and bear the image of God in our creation, aren't we? We were created in the image of God. It is Him whom we are to reflect into this world. But the world doesn't want that. The world wants you to become what it wants you to become, molding you into the shape it wants you to be, conforming you to the individual that it wants you to be. But God says, I want to transform you from the inside out. I want you to go from the the larva state of a caterpillar to a butterfly. I want you to metamorphosize. I want you to change from the inside out, a permanent change. After a butterfly, after a caterpillar turns into a butterfly, I never see the butterfly crawl again. Do you? I really like being a caterpillar. I'm going to stay down here even though I got these beautiful wings. Not once have I ever seen that. And I've asked a lot of butterflies. No. (laughs) You go into the new creation that you are and you live accordingly. You live accordingly. We were at the uh, Brookfield Zoo last year, and they have the butterfly tent there. And when we walked into the beginning, you know, they have all that air that blows on you to make sure that none of the butterflies survive if they try to escape. Because that air is not just going to knock them off, it's going to kill them. And then you are confronted with all the larvae states of the different butterflies, and all the kids go, Oh, gross. I can't believe that. Mom, I don't want to be here. This is disgusting. And then mom and dad point them outside. That's so I had due do to autumn. Point her outside, and then you see the beautiful butterflies. Jesus wants to take you from that sinful place where you are deformed because the world has tried to conform you into its image whose father and ruler of this world is Satan himself. And God says, I want you to come to me. I want you to believe in me. And when you do, I'm going to start a work in you. And that work that I'm going to start in you is going to transform you from the inside out back to the image of my son, Jesus Christ. That's what God desires for you. And that's how it begins. And how does it all start? By the renewing of your mind. As you begin to read the word of God, the word of God allows the spirit to, to transform you from the inside out. It shows and demonstrates and it truly depicts for us the image of God in whom we are conforming to. And this is what God desires for you. This is what God is doing in you. He wants your minds to be renewed, and as a result, you will learn and prove and discern what is that acceptable, perfect understanding of the will of God. It's at that point that the will of God will be manifested to you in such a reality that you will be amazed, and finally you'll be able to satisfy and to answer that question that lags and longs in so many people's hearts, what is the purpose of life? This is how it all begins. So this morning I want to close with this. And I ask you this morning, do you agree with this? Because I want this to be the mandate of our church. As we look at this disconnect in the church across the United States of America, let us be clear that we do not want to contribute to this hypocrisy any longer as believers in Christ. Not saying that we are better than anybody, because we certainly are not. But I want you to be followers of Christ who truly believe that what you believe is really real, really true. Do we all agree that from this point forward, this would be the mandate of our Christian life? In Colossians 3.17, and whatever you do, be it word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Meaning, all that I say, all that I do, be to the glory of God. That's what I desire. That's what I hope to do. Because what I believe, I really believe, is true. Now the question is, Do you believe that what you really believe is true?